Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Your kid's Halloween treat could be a COVID vaccine. The lead starts right now. It's the news so many parents have been waiting for. Pfizer says its COVID vaccine is safe and effective for children ages 5 to 11. What you need to know ahead. Opening up, the U.S. makes a big move to ease international travel, but there are some confusing caveats. Plus, Jacques France is furious with President Biden and calls a nuclear submarine deal with Australia a betrayal how President Biden is trying to clean things up with America's oldest ally. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're keeping a close eye on the markets right now after the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed nearly 615 points down today. Earlier today, the market plunged more than 900 points after American investors were spooked by new concerns about China's economy. But we begin this hour with breaking news in our health lead. And moments ago, the U.S. death toll from coronavirus surpassed the total death toll during the 1918 flu pandemic. The U.S. COVID death toll is now 675,446 Americans lost to the virus. A horrific milestone. But today we did get some positive news for families with elementary school-aged children. Pfizer announced today that a lower dose of its COVID-19 vaccine is safe and generates a robust antibody response for kids age 5 to 11. There are still some steps that need to be taken before the FDA's expected emergency use authorization is asserted in a matter of weeks. My hope is they're going to move quickly, because as we know, a lot of kids are getting infected and sick, and uh, school's in session. I have a 9-year-old, and my hope is that he's going to get his first shot by Halloween. Uh, I think we're going to be able to make that deadline. COVID infections among children have risen exponentially since July as more and more kids get tested every week before going to school. Right now, more than 54% of the U.S. population is fully vaccinated. That's about 181 million people. If the FDA grants emergency use authorization for kids aged 5 to 11, that would make an additional 28 million people in the U.S. eligible. Though we should note, what happens after that is up to parents. Adolescents aged 12 and up They've been eligible since May, but only 46% of them are fully vaccinated. As CNN's Jason Carroll reports, we're still waiting for important details about when shots will go into these arms. It's information parents of younger children have been waiting for. Pfizer sharing data that shows its vaccine is safe for 5 to 11-year-olds and elicits a robust antibody response. I think this is going to make a huge difference in the fight against COVID-19. And parents, pediatricians, and teachers are waiting for this. Pfizer plans to submit its data to the FDA for emergency use authorization as soon as possible. Medical experts say if all goes well, the shot could be available for 5 to 11-year-olds by Halloween. 
depending on how long the FDA takes to review the application, whether it's a four-week review or a six-week review, you could have a, a vaccine available to children as early as probably by the end of October. We know there are lots of cases in children, but the risk of dying is still very, very low. While parents wait for the FDA to look at the new Pfizer data, school districts around the country are focusing on slowing the spread of COVID in the classroom. New York City's mayor says starting September 27th, students attending school in the city will be tested weekly for COVID-19, as opposed to bi-weekly. And in the nation's capital, the mayor getting rid of the testing option and mandating all teachers, staff, and child care workers must be vaccinated. This applies to D.C. public schools, public charter schools, private schools, parochial schools, and child care facilities. San Francisco's mayor, London Breed, now at the center of a firestorm over her own mask mandates. Mayor Breed defiant after she was caught on camera not wearing a mask inside a nightclub. And I was sitting with my friends and everyone who came in there was vaccinated. So the fact that we have turned this into a story about being maskless, no, I'm not going to sip and put my mask on, sip and put my mask on, sip and put my mask on, eat and put my mask on. While I'm eating and I'm drinking, I'm going to keep my mask off. So the fact that this is even a story is sad. Some signs of improvement in the hardest hit parts of the country. Cases in the South appear to be stabilizing. But states such as Tennessee, West Virginia and North Carolina now seeing surges in cases. And Jake, late today, this development on the Pfizer front, it turns out that the Pfizer vaccine is the most administered since the FDA fully approved it about a month ago. The Pfizer vaccine now accounts for some 70 percent of all doses administered. That according to the CDC. Jake. All right, Jason Carroll, thank you so much. Joining us now live to discuss Dr. Peter Hotez. He's co-director at the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital. Dr. Hotez. Let's take a step back here for a second. The U.S. death toll from coronavirus just passed the total number of deaths in the United States from the 1918 flu pandemic. How preventable was it for the U.S. to reach and surpass that horrific milestone? Jake, you know, what I'm focusing right now are on the deaths that have occurred after April and May because by April or May, any American who wanted to get vaccinated and was eligible could get vaccinated. So we've lost 100,000 Americans since April or May, almost all of them unvaccinated, almost all of those deaths preventable. Those were unnecessary deaths. And we're still on a, we're still on a, a terrible trajectory. The estimates are from the Institute for Health Metrics and other organizations is another 100,000 deaths on top of that by the end of the year. So 200,000 Americans who are needlessly going to lose their lives. We're at 2,000 deaths per day. We never should be in this place right now. There is some good news today. Pfizer has promising data suggesting that a low dose of its vaccine is safe and effective for kids age 5 to 11. Uh, How crucial is it at this point in the pandemic to get shots in arms for that age group? And and what is the primary purpose, do you think? Is Is it to stop the spread? Well, it's it's both. I think, first of all, 
the the key is we're seeing so many children in this delta wave get hospitalized so here in the south where uh, the vaccination rates are really really low among young people among parents and teenagers we're seeing high levels of hospitalizations in children's hospitals even in pediatric icus because of this delta variant so number one it's important to vaccinate kids uh, in order to protect and protect them and protect their health prevent long covid um, but also the fact that if we could fully vaccinate the schools, we could really halt transmission in the schools. So what's happening now is kids are coming home infecting their parents, parents are infecting their kids, kids are infecting each other. It's making it impossible to get our kids through the school year. So vaccines would do that. It would get our kids through the school year. And then ultimately, if we're serious about halting this epidemic in the United States, we need 85 to 90% of the US population vaccinated. That means all of the adults, all of the adolescents, and, and large numbers of young kids. Mm -hmm. I, I still believe we could get there, but those are the three goals that I see. This new vaccine trial data for Pfizer, it's just for kids aged five to 11. Why did they limit it to that age group? What is the difference between vaccinating a four-year-old and vaccinating a five-year-old? Well, it's not so much that, but this is pretty standard in, in, in vaccine development that we do what's called step-down studies. So you start with the adults, then you pivot to the teenagers, adolescents, and then you start moving to younger age groups in, in, in segments. And so 5 to 11 makes sense since these are all K through 12 school age kids. Uh, and then we'll look at uh, the younger age cohorts as well. And then the question is always going to be, well, how young do you think this will go? And I think there are a couple of scenarios. One down the road, maybe a year from now, we could give this like we do measles vaccine at one year of age or do it like flu vaccine, anyone over the age of six months. But uh, this is a, a, a well-tested approach to do this in stages. Dr. Hota, stand by for a minute. I, I want to quickly turn to the Biden administration's plan to ease travel restrictions on all fully vaccinated foreign visitors flying to the United States. That will start in November. If you plan on driving, however, across the Canadian or Mexican borders, you might still be out of luck. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez joins us down. Priscilla, explain this to me because I don't understand it. Why allow people to fly into the U.S. if they're vaccinated? but not allow people who are vaccinated to drive across the border. This has been the question among lobbyists, lawmakers, and frankly, residents of border towns. And what the administration has to say is that they are fully guided by the assessment and the analysis of public health and medical experts. But what that fails to answer is why there's a different public health risk for those flying into the U.S. and those driving across the land borders. And here's what the uh, representative of New York, Brian Higgins, he is the chair of the Northern Border Caucus. He put it quite simply. He said, quote, Continued closure of the U.S. border to vaccinated Canadians is completely unnecessary and unexplained. So clearly frustration over restrictions that have been in place since March of 2020. Yeah, the Canadians have surpassed the United States when it comes to vaccine rates. How much of this has to do with the crisis of undocumented migrants crossing the border? So we are learning that the U.S. previously relayed to the Canadian counterparts that they want the land restrictions to be on the same timeline this, as you mentioned, even though the, the situations are completely different, you have overwhelming number of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border and, and, frankly, U.S. Customs and Border Protection officials who are concerned about dealing with that as well as processing people at the ports of entry. Different situation in Canada. And in fact, in Canada, as of early August, U.S. citizens and residents who are fully vaccinated can cross. Canadians, however, can't and won't until October 21st when we'll learn if they renew them or not. All right, Priscilla Alvarez, thanks so much. Dr. Hortez, I want to get your reaction to these travel restrictions. 
reiterating some context here, the U.S. has reported more than 42 million COVID cases over the course of the pandemic. Canada has had nearly 1.6 million cases. We have 28 times the number of cases Canada has. Our population is 10 times the size of Canada's. In addition, the Canadians are more vaccinated than the Americans are. So do these travel restrictions make any sense to you when it comes to our northern border? Jake, travel restrictions have never made any sense to me, period. Look, when if, if you remember at the very beginning of the pandemic in 2020, we were obsessing about travel restrictions from China. And then, of course, the virus came in from southern Europe, and that's what ignited that horrible first wave in, in New York City. So that should have been a sign that we just uh, don't understand uh, how 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 travel restrictions would have any positive benefit restricting from Europe is absurd. I mean, look at, look at the COVID vac- COVID infection rates in the United States right now, places like West Virginia, Tennessee, they're the highest in the world. And we're talking about travel restrictions. And, and so I, I think this, this is failed policy and, and we need to open up our borders as, as much as we can, um, at, least from, at least on the northern side and from Europe and elsewhere in order to not hurt our economy because it's certainly not helping us with COVID-19. Dr. Peter Hotez, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Democrats are fast approaching a self-imposed deadline and the cracks in the party are widening. What did Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez just say? about Biden's big agenda items. We'll tell you in a second. Plus, this all comes amid a major week for the Biden presidency here and abroad. The headwinds the president's facing, that's ahead. In our politics lead now, one week and counting for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to pull off what right now seems a bit impossible uniting enough Democrats to pass both a trillion-dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill and something else. She promised the vote by next Monday, but even today, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is among the progressives in the party, insisting again they will not vote for the infrastructure bill unless it comes accompanied by a larger $3.5 trillion economic package. That's what the progressives are saying, Many moderates are saying they're not willing to go that far. CNN's Ryan Nobles is live for us on Capitol Hill. So, Ryan, where are we today? Is it, is it all or nothing? Is it maybe something? What, what's going to happen? Yeah, it's maybe something, Jake, but maybe not as soon as we thought. It, it seems pretty clear here that Democrats are going to have a very difficult time cobbling together all these different factions in order to get something passed by next week, which was their original intention. And part of that is because, you know, the Democratic Party is a big tent. And within it, there are a lot of members that have their own desires as to what they want to see as the ultimate outcome here. And so Nancy Pelosi is attempting to shepherd through this legislation and please all of them. On the left, she has progressives who are insistent that they aren't going to vote for that bipartisan infrastructure package if it doesn't mean that the $3.5 trillion human infrastructure bill passed. And within that, that means people want to see changes to climate change, immigration, and others. In the middle, she has rank and file members who are loyal to her, but also have their own pet projects, like, for instance, uh, getting rid of the cap on state and local tax deductions. And then, of course, on the right, those are the moderates. They are insistent that that bipartisan package be passed, but they're also concerned about the big price tag for that $3.5 trillion plan and how it's going to be paid for and if it's going to impact the deficit. Jake, the speaker has to try and convince all of them that they have to get on the same page because you can't have one without the other. And right now, Democrats have not figured out a way to get across the finish line and do both. And that's just the House. 
I mean, whatever they pass, if anything, they're going to have to get through the narrowest of majorities in the Senate. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Jake. And that's also part of Speaker Pelosi's charge. You know, she's not a member of the Senate, but she has to deliver a bill that comes out of the House that the senators will at least be a consider, they will at least consider voting for. And in particular, that's Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, both who have said they're uncomfortable with uh, passing something that is as pricey as $3.5 trillion. If they don't pass that, all those progressives get off the boat. Jake, that is why this has been such a difficult task for the Democrats here in Congress. Ryan Nobles, thanks so much. Appreciate it. As President Biden faces opposition at home, He's heading to a United Nations gathering where the situation with foreign partners is also a bit rocky. Stay with us. In our politics lead now with a growing list of problems on his plate and a dipping approval rating, President Biden is Hoping for a reset this week as he presents his global agenda to a gathering of world leaders in New York. But here in Washington, D.C., the president's biggest domestic priorities are on the clock. And as CNN's Phil Mattingly reports for us now, the White House is fully aware that the next few weeks could really make or break the Biden presidency. In June, I voted to begin debate in the Senate. Facing Democratic opposition at home and blowback from allies abroad, President Biden departing the White House today as he grapples with one of the most consequential weeks of his first year in office. I think the president's view, having been on the world scene for 50 years, is that you always have to work on your relationships. Back in Washington, his legislative agenda hangs in the balance. Right now, what we are doing is we are engaging with the House and the Senate. It is a complicated proposal. With no agreement on a path forward between moderates and progressives, imperiling his $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill and his $3.5 trillion expansion of the social safety net, Biden set to ramp up his push to bridge the gap with meetings and calls this week, officials say. I think we'll get there. Uh, it's going to take some work, and we are going to do the work. But the White House also grappling with a looming government shutdown and the threat of a catastrophic U.S. default. All as Biden heads to the U.N. General Assembly in New York, looking to make amends and set his diplomatic agenda. The president's going to lay out the case for why the next decade will determine our future, not just for the United States, but for the global community. The president's seeking to have a call with French President Emmanuel Macron amid fury over a U.S. deal with Australia that short-circuited a French submarine deal worth billions. What I expect the president will do on that call is reaffirm uh, our commitment to working with one of our oldest and closest partners. All as he plans to use his highly anticipated Tuesday remarks to defend his Afghanistan withdrawal and lay out the need for intensive diplomacy to address global challenges, from climate change and the pandemic to a rising China, officials said. We uh, have an opportunity to work together on the global issues that the world is facing. That's what he expects the focus of the next few days to be. And Jake, far from running away from the Afghanistan withdrawal decision, the president, according to senior administration officials, is going to point to it, basically make the point that this is a critical moment of transition, transition away from two decades of war and towards what this official said was intensive diplomacy. You're going to see that play out over the course of this week. Several bilateral meetings with key world leaders, obviously the speech as well, a recognition that for the Biden administration, for the president himself, as he seeks to rally allies, this is a key moment, particularly in the way of a bumpy last several weeks. Jake. 
Phil Mattingly at the White House, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss, Evan Osnos, who not only wrote one of the most in-depth biographies of Joe Biden ever written, if not the most, but he's out with a new book. It's called Wildland, The Making of America's Fury, and it's on sale uh, now. Evan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to have you here. Uh, Let's just take a look at some of the issues on Biden's plate right now, from the exit to Afghanistan and the Americans and Afghan allies still trapped there, to the anger from France because of that deal with Australia and the UK, to the crisis at the southern border, Mm. to the battle over booster shots, the Democratic Party infighting over whether or not his agenda is even going to get passed. How is he handling all this, do you think? He promised competence. It's a very full plate, you know, and I think part of what you're seeing right now is also the accumulated effect of the end of the honeymoon combined with the fact that he inherited a lot of underlying issues from the previous president, not just things generated by Donald Trump, but the very fact that Trump became president reflected some of these underlying divides, and he's now contending with that. Just look at the pandemic of the unvaccinated. This is not something that was just entirely a product of Trump. It was also a fact that Trump was the agent, the center of this really nasty sense of divide in this country. Yeah, and and a skepticism sometimes earned, often not, in mm. anything institutions had to say, including the CDC. Um, President Biden's approval rating is, is the lowest it's been since he took office. A recent Reuters-Ipsos poll found 44% of adults approve, 50% disapprove of the job he's doing. How do you think that factors into his decision-making, if at all? Well, he is in this position of having, as we all know, run for office saying, look, I can bring people together. For a long time, he's used some of that language. And what you've heard from him recently, Jake, is that he's sort of running out of patience. I mean, as he said recently, he's kind of redefining what he's going to try to do. He said, look, most Americans are unified when it comes to the vaccine. Seventy-five percent of American adults want it. There are 25 percent who won't get it yet. And he said that's the part that, look, we are unified as a country when it comes to the science. So that's how he's putting it. So... In your new book, you write this about President Biden's inauguration. You wrote, quote, Biden turned over and over again to the prospects for national reunion, what he called the way of unity. But if Biden's speech contained one argument above all, it was a belief in the sheer possibility of change. However, a Fox poll of registered voters last week found 37 percent think the country has become more united since Biden took office. Fifty four percent say it is less united. Fifty four percent. Um, less united under Biden. Now, I don't know how many of those people say that that's Biden's fault, but it's hard to argue that the country is any more united than it was. You know, I think one could argue that this, this is the point in the process where the patient is on the operating table. Biden's view would be the only way he begins to restore confidence in people who don't agree with him politically is by putting facts on the ground. Begin to get shovels digging again. Begin to get the infrastructure bill actually happening. This is the case he's making to Congress to say, if we want to get people to buy into politics again, not just me personally, we've got to do something. They elected us here to do something. So that's why so much is riding on his work over the next few weeks in Congress. But as you know, President Biden didn't create 25 percent of the country refusing to get vaccinated or a majority of Republicans believing the election lie and on and on. Your book goes into a lot of the root causes of this, at least over the last couple decades. Uh, yeah. You could argue it dates back farther than that. Um, it, I mean, it's a great look at, at anger and conspiracy theories and radicalism and, and, and more. I, I guess I, I read the book and I think, God, can you even really unify the country as 
for instance, it was unified after 9-11, briefly. Uh, well, you're right. We all had that memory just a couple of weeks ago, that feeling of that moment. I will tell you, though, there are very definable ways in which you can begin to build some unity. It's not a panacea, but I'll give you one fact. You know, in 1940, if you were a kid born in the United States, you stood a 90% chance of out-earning your parents. Today, a kid born in America has less than half as much a chance. Our intergenerational mobility is now lower than China's, which is not a compliment to China. It's a reflection of how much we have lost sight of a core American attribute. And if we focus on that, there are a lot of things that go into it, as you know, Jake. But if you can begin to say, look, we agree on the power of social mobility. Let's try to rejigger our economy, our tax code in ways that can restore that. That's a start. Well, one of the other problems, of course, and we can talk for two hours on this, is the incentive structure is in, in the media and in politics is right now completely built around alienating and attacking as opposed to building coalitions. Anyway, Evan Esnes, it's a great book, Wildland, The Making of America's Fury. It's on sale right now. If you're getting in a fight with a really good friend, do you usually take several days to call them to hash it out? When will President Biden call French President Emmanuel Macron? Stay with us. our world lead, a tense tête-à-tête coming up for President Joe Biden and French President Emmanuel Macron. France is furious with the U.S. because of a surprise snub on a $65 billion diesel submarine contract. Originally, France and Australia had shaken hands on the deal, but just last week, Australia changed course and went with the U.S. and U.K. on a new contract for nuclear subs. France was so offended by the faux pas, Macron pulled the French ambassadors to the U.S. and Australia. CNN's Kylie Atwood joins us now from New York, where the U.N. General Assembly meeting is about to take place. And Kylie, the two leaders, Macron and Biden, plan to speak in the next few days. How much rides on this call uh, for these two allies? Well, it's a critical call because the French have been very outspoken in just how angry they are about this. And a senior administration official said that the president reached out to Macron uh, to set up this call because they want to chart a productive path forward. The Biden administration clearly hoping that the two partners can move on past this spat between the two of them. But it's very clear from the French position that they are angry about this. They have recalled their ambassador and they plan to take uh, more of a response because they are meeting with the ambassador for consultations to see kind of just how they're going to respond. So this is an important call because it gives President Biden uh, the chance to speak about, you know, how he authentically wants to work with the French in the Indo-Pacific, sees them as a key ally, and it is yet to be seen if that will be enough uh, to assuage uh, President Macron and kind of then curtail what may be an even further response from the French here. I have to say, I I think it might be popular with a certain segment of the French population for Macron to slap the United States. Uh, Macron has an election coming up in the spring, and I I wondered, are there any domestic politics for France playing into, into this reaction? Well, American and Australian diplomats have told me that they do think that politics at home are at play play here for President Macron. His presidential election is early next year, uh, so this could be something that he could use to get something from the Americans, to get something from the Australians uh, that puts him in good standing. So we'll have to see if President Biden is going to play hardball and not give him anything, or if he's willing to give him something that he can declare a victory here. Jake? All right, Kylie Atwood, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in CNN Global Affairs Analyst Susan Glasser. And Seth Jones, he's the senior vice president for the Center for Strategic and International Studies and author of the book Three Dangerous Men, Russia, China, Iran, and the Rise of Irregular Warfare. Susan, 
What is your reaction to, to Kylie's reporting uh, about Macron's upcoming election? Some diplomats suspect that might be playing a role here. Yeah, Jake, I thought that was an excellent point you made. Uh, you know, Marine Le Pen, uh, you know, is a hard right challenger to Macron, you know, is sort of the, the, the French version of America first in a way. And this is an opportunity uh, to shore up uh, your anti-American uh, bona fides, which are always welcome in a French political context. I do believe that's part of what's going on here. Uh, I don't think that it's realistic uh, for the French, and I don't think at this point they do expect that uh, President Biden is going to reverse course in any way. Uh, in fact, uh, tomorrow at the UN, he's going to double down on the idea uh, that this kind of diplomacy and this kind of challenge to China and the autocracies of the world is, is, is at the core of his foreign policy. But I have been really struck by the, the volume and noise with which the French have made, have registered this complaint, whether it's uh, political or not. Remember that through the whole four years of troubled relations with Donald Trump, they never took such a step as uh, withdrawing the ambassador for consultations. No, indeed, they never did. Seth, uh, take a listen to the recalled uh, French ambassador to the U.S. A few days before the announcements last Wednesday, we had a meeting of the two ministers of defense and foreign affairs of France and Australia. We absolutely weren't informed of the new course chosen by Australia. Do you think this was intentionally intentional or, or an unforced error? Well, I think in, in terms of the U.S. decision, I think it was absolutely intentional. They made a decision uh, with the Australians and the British to move forward with those nuclear-powered submarines. Had they told the French beforehand, I think we would have had a lot of French effort to get the U.S. before making a decision to reverse course. And uh, the U.S. had made a decision not to reverse course, as we see right now. Biden's committed to this. So I think waiting till it was too late was the decision. I think it was purposeful. And, and Susan, uh, as you note, uh, no matter how troubled the relationship was between the United States and France during the Trump years, uh, Macron never recalled the ambassador. Uh, Biden got elected promising, uh, basically, the, the Biden uh, doctrine is not that dissimilar from Trump's in terms of the, the position of the U.S., but plus allies. That's how they talk about it. It's, you know, it's, it's doing what's best for America, plus we have these alliances. But you know, things are now worse with France than they ever were under Trump. Well, look, uh, the U.S. and France have a long history of going uh, certainly back to de Gaulle of uh, you know, posturing uh, with each other when it comes to foreign policy, often at the expense of NATO and other parts of the Western alliance. So it's not it's not entirely a new phenomenon. I think the question is, uh, how long will it go on? How serious is the rift? There already were a number of tensions between not just the France, but other European allies and the new Biden administration as well. For example, over Afghanistan, there were bruised feelings both about the initial decision of the president to withdraw in April and then also the way in which it was executed. And that makes it a bit awkward for Biden then to go to the UN and sort of proclaim, as you said, that his doctrine is essentially uh, uh, a strong presence of the US in the world, but also with more allies. And I think that's why you saw this announcement today about uh, lifting the, the ban on Europeans and other travelers to the United States if they've mm. been vaccinated. That was something the Europeans have been demanding for months uh, and have been very frustrated with the Biden administration. So, you know, at least it was something to offer them in advance of this U.N. speech. And then, Seth, a phone call seems like a pretty easy thing 
to schedule and get on the books uh, if you want it on the books? Why is it taking so long uh, to schedule? Well, it's not entirely clear how quick the French... It looks like the French want to drag this one out, uh, Jake. Um, I, I would just say more broadly, I think the challenge, as Susan noted, is that this is coming right on the hurdle of, of the Afghanistan decision. It was very clear that, that the U.S. did not conduct significant planning or even alert most of its NATO allies, many of which had forces in Afghanistan of the withdrawal. So there wasn't this consultation there. Now there hasn't been a consultation with the French. I think the big question is, what is the Biden administration going to do going forward in its it's got a national security strategy, a national posture review, a national a nuclear posture review all out by the end of the year? And to what degree will we actually see movement down the road on on dealing with allies? Susan Glasser, Seth Jones, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. You could call it political hubris. Why Justin Trudeau's decision to call an election now could backfire and potentially cost him his job. Stay with us. In our world lead, a show of strength that could backfire big time for Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Trudeau tried to capitalize on his popularity over the summer, calling an early snap election, hoping that his Liberal Party might win control of Canada's parliament. That decision 36 days ago has escalated to this. Take a look. Ugly protests, Trudeau's poll numbers sank, rivals called the election nothing more than a power grab. CNN's Paula Newton is covering this election from Montreal. And Paula, Trudeau says the pandemic was the motive for this election. How so? Well, you know, his argument, Jake, was that, look, Canada voters need to weigh in, right? What do you want Canada's comeback to look like post this pandemic? And there were serious issues on the table. $10 a day daycare. Uh, meeting and exceeding climate uh, targets for Canada. All that was there, but so quickly, as you said, Jake, voters saw through it. And they thought, wait a minute, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Not only that, our Western provinces are having a very hard time with the pandemic. They're still talking about perhaps having to bring in the military. All of it wore thin. And as you just saw, Jake, there certainly was an ugly underbelly to this election that I haven't seen before. Some of those protesters were anti-vaxxers. They stalked Trudeau's campaign. It certainly energized him through this and made him inch up a little bit in the last few days of the campaign. But all in all, voters said, what is this about? You were governing just fine in a minority parliament, making some coalitions there uh, with another left-wing party. So far, so good, right? And for that reason, it'll be interesting now to see if voters end up punishing him. I have to tell you, too, listen, we are in a pandemic, right? COVID-19 restrictions right now at this hour, lineups at voting uh, booths across uh, Canada. The problem being that those COVID restrictions mean there are fewer workers, longer lineups, social distancing, and people are wondering how much turnout could also end up impacting Mm. this election. What happens if Trudeau's party loses the election? What happens next? Well, normally, if you get the most seats, you get to form government. So that would mean Trudeau is out. Having said that, though, this could get a lot more complicated. Look, there are six national parties uh, at this point in time. So, of course, cliche, right? A long night. But more than that, this could be hours or even days until we get a result. 
Jake, I think you're familiar with that scenario. And so we will wait and see what happens right now. If you believe the plurality of polls, it's that Justin Trudeau will end the night or tomorrow exactly where he started five weeks ago at the beginning of this campaign. Mm. And believe me, that will still be political, politically bruising especially when Canadians know this pandemic isn't over yet. Uh, well, six months ago when you and I talked about this, uh, things weren't as, as well, uh, things weren't going as well in Canada as they are now uh, in terms of you, you, Canada is, has a better vaccination rate than the United States does, fewer COVID deaths than the United States does, uh, even proportionally. Um, isn't that enough? Uh, is that not something that, that people are excited about? Not on your life, Jake, and why? In the middle of this campaign, what are the headlines saying? That the province of Alberta might need the military to come in because they are peaking in ICU admissions. I know this sounds very familiar to many people. The issue here is that the pandemic isn't over. Canada's top doctor last week just said, look, 7 million Canadians who should be vaccinated are not. Put that together with a publicly funded universal healthcare system that just does not have enough ICU beds and staff and you still could be looking at a nightmare scenario in All the right. weeks to come. Paula Newton in Montreal. Keep us posted on what's going on up north. Appreciate it. The FBI search is the home where Gabby Petito and her fiancé lived in Florida after investigators find what they believe is her body in Wyoming. But where is her fiancé? Stay with us. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.